0: Just like in Ireland, people in China like to own their own home. And just like here, young people have been struggling to afford one. But now there's another factor, keeping a generation of young Chinese people at home with their parents. Fears about the economic slowdown are stopping Shanghai residents from buying property. Now, after four decades of rapid growth that transformed the lives of hundreds of millions of people, economic doubt has crept into China. And that uncertainty is holding young people back.
1: I wouldn't want to buy a house. To be honest,
0: no matter what policies come out, it won't reach the point where ordinary people would want to buy a house. And it's not just property. Youth unemployment has risen. And domestic demand for goods Chinese factories produce has slowed. It paints a gloomy picture. Many expected a bigger rebound after strict coronavirus controls ended. And that all matters for the rest of us.
1: But it's not just Chinese businesses that are going to be impacted if China, uh, if the Chinese economy gets worse. It really does have an effect on everybody else.
0: This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, what's behind China's economic problems and what those problems mean for the rest of the world? I speak to Beijing correspondent Dennis Staunton. Dennis, it's autumn and the news coming out of China all year, but I suppose ramping up in the spring and the summer particularly, is that the economy is faltering. But we know that China had some of the harshest COVID measures in the whole world. How did those measures impact on the economy?
1: Really, it had two impacts. One was that you had a depressing impact on uh, small businesses that were consumer-facing because there were these restrictions, and then also it cut China off from the rest of the world. And so, uh, although factories were operating uh, and they continued, for example, to produce iPhones, uh, you know, as they produce most of the iPhones in the world, you know, nonetheless, uh, you know, there was a kind of a depressing effect. The other impact that it had was that, unlike in the West, you didn't tend to have furlough schemes or these big government handouts, so that a lot of people found that if they weren't making any money during this period of couple of years, they just didn't have that money. So they emerged, whereas a lot of people emerged in Western countries out of this uh, lockdown, having saved money. Most people in China weren't in that position. They found that they were emerging into a world where they probably had less money.
0: Could you sum up the state of the Chinese economy right now?
1: After China ended its zero-COVID policies after about three years uh, in December of last year, what the world was hoping for and expecting was a big rebound in the Chinese economy.
0: China, after three years, the country is reopening its borders and saying goodbye to its zero-COVID policies. You're
1: going to see people traveling again, spending again, you'll see investment spending again. You're going to see a jump in China. And that in turn would help to lift the world economy, which was suffering from all kinds of things like the impact of the Ukraine war and various other factors. And so what happened was that uh, immediately after the end of the zero Covid restrictions, there was a bit of an upswing as people started to spend a bit of money. Its economy grew four and a half percent year on year in the first quarter, better than the four percent forecast. But then they stopped. And what you found since then has been that the economic statistics have been getting worse every week. Retail sales rose by 12.7 percent, soaring from 18.4 percent in the previous month. Industrial production expanded 3.5%, down from a 5.6% rise in April. So in other words, it's not that that it's not growing, but the rate of growth is slowing. And so what that means is that the economy is kind of slowing down. And at the same time, you've got this big problem hanging over the whole thing, which is a property crash, which is happening right now.
0: The slow-motion collapse of the world's most indebted property developer has just entered a new stage. $85 billion of losses that Evergrande
1: has reported over the last two and a half years. I mean, it's just a gigantic number. This uh, housing slump, which uh,
0: could be much worse than official data is shown. Another major developer, Country Garden, has warned that it may not be able to make interest payments on its bonds as it struggles to find the cash to finish projects around the country.
1: There are two important facts. One is that the home ownership rate in China is enormous. It's 90%. That compares with about 70% in Ireland. Now, we in Ireland think we like to own rather than to, to rent, but in China it's even more so. So it's a 90% home ownership rate. Everybody wants to own their own home. And the other thing is that most, like about 80% of uh, homes in China, they are sold before they're built. So they're pre-sold. So what happens is that the state owns all of the land in China, but local authorities will lease land, say, to a developer. And they lease it for 35 years for residential property. So I'm a developer, and I will then pay the local government uh, to get this land for 35 years, and I am then allowed to develop. So let's say I decide I'm going to build a development with a thousand units. I will sell those units within a few months of getting, of having bought the land. And I don't really, in most cases, have to have built very much. In some cities, you have to put the foundations in. But in most cases, they don't really have to have done much. So within a few months, I've sold all of these uh, units, and with that money, I then go and start buying other uh, plots from the local government. This sends lots of money into the local government revenue, and that was very important to them. At the same time, I'm uh, you know borrowing more money, perhaps to buy more, to because I then have to build these uh, these dwellings, and so uh, so this uh, was this fueled this boom. And everything was doing fine while prices kept going up, while the market kept expanding. And then what happened was, simply they built too much. And so they uh, so you had, rather than you had in Ireland, but on a much, much bigger scale, you had ghosted states. You had then uh, developers starting to get into trouble. So there's a mixture of some developers are state-owned enterprises, and others are private developers. And some of the big private developers particularly, they found uh, over the last couple of years that they weren't able to service their debt. And one of the reasons that they found themselves in trouble was that around, say, 2015, 2016, the government realized that what was happening was that although the property market was going very well, people couldn't afford to buy. And it was very similar to what happened elsewhere, that you suddenly found that if you were, say, a a young person trying to get, you know, moving out of home, that you just couldn't afford the prices in cities like, so in cities like Beijing, for example, they were the same prices that you'd find in cities like Boston or San Francisco. And yet the income was much lower. And so so the government decided to start introducing these measures to try to cool the market down. And these were aimed directly at the developers and to stop them taking on new debt. And what happened was that these uh, measures were too effective. And the developers suddenly found that they were not able to function anymore. And in many cases, they found that they had pre-sold all these housing units to people who had paid for them and they didn't have the money to finish them. And so that then became uh, a big problem. And uh, so what you've had is a number of the biggest companies, the biggest private developers are on the verge of bankruptcy. They've been unable to service their debts and they are struggling now to finish even the projects that they've already sold. And uh, and and nobody wants to buy anything new because they're just not sure what's going to happen.
0: Look, as we know here, if there's a problem in the property sector, if there's a crash in the property sector, it has a massive impact outside that sector. How? Is the property situation impacting Chinese people in general?
1: Well, first of all, the as you say, the property sector, it accounts for about a quarter of the economy. If you, th- if you take everything else, in, you know, sort of cement, construction, furniture, lighting, everything that goes into it is a huge part of the economy. So it's affected everybody. If you know, nobody's building anything, really, and so nobody's and these other people aren't getting work either. In the same way, there's a whole kind of shadow banking system which has been lending money to property developers. And uh, that's now suddenly getting hit. So it's starting to have a bit of contagion there. The actual main Chinese banks are kind of okay. The other big impact is on local governments, because they uh, depended on this for a lot of their revenue. And they're suddenly being strapped for cash. And they've got huge debts as well. And then the big impact is that people themselves are just finding that uh, in some cases, they've got a big mortgage. And they don't have the apartment. And also what they're seeing is that this uh, property, which they thought was going to be worth... X amount is now suddenly not, and so they're getting into negative equity. They're just, they, you know, but but more than anything, the big impact is on confidence in the economy, and people are feeling that, uh, you know, that they're not going to spend any money because they're not just sure how things are going to go, and that then in turn has an impact on the real economy because people aren't hiring or they're not paying people more, and it becomes more difficult for people to get a job or to get a better job, and everybody is just, uh, you know tightening their belts, and that's not good for the economy.
0: Now, you reported in August that China has now a massive unemployment problem, especially among the young. Youth unemployment has risen to a record high of 20.8%. There are so many students graduating this year, but there aren't enough jobs. We're fighting for these jobs. I mean... That's hardly a good sign in an economy. And it's maybe it's unexpected for China. You know, it's not what we expect to hear about China.
1: It's got a peculiar employment problem. Like the unemployment rate is actually pretty low uh, overall, and there even are jobs for young people. But the problem is they're not where the young people want to be. So you've got this huge number—about ten or eleven million graduates emerging every year uh, out of the Chinese universities and colleges. And these people have worked incredibly hard. They've had to pay tuition fees, and they then emerge uh, sometimes with two degrees, and they now find that they're not able to get uh, an appropriate job and they're told well you can get a job if you go down to the south of the country and go and work in a factory but that's not really what they had been thinking in terms of or they can get jobs in the service economy and so what you've got is this mismatch between the people and the jobs
0: the young people particularly
1: exactly so some of these uh, factories are actually looking for workers and they can't get them and uh, at the same time you've got these young people who can't get the kind of jobs that they were hoping to get uh, youth unemployment they 've the, the way they measure it is in a way uh, it kind of it, it produces a bigger figure than we would have in uh, in Ireland say so the youth unemployment figure here was getting above twenty percent for a few months running and in August, the statistics bureau said well we 're not going to publish that figure for a while we 're going to suspend it while we work out whether the methodology is right and so but of course that sent a very bad signal because if uh, a statistic is bad and you suddenly say well we 're not going to publish it anymore you think Well, the next one must have been much worse. And so that then has, uh, you know, knocked confidence as well. But the problem, of course, with the youth unemployment is also that it creates—it uh, it means that there are all these young people who are emerging into the world. In many cases, again, similar to home, they can't leave home because they might be able to get a job, but it's not a very good one. They certainly can't afford to pay rent, and they can't afford to uh, to save to go uh, and buy a place. And so they're uh, usually they're an only child, and so they're usually uh, at home. When you talk to uh, to parents of of young people and they will say well you know uh, we've now suddenly started to realise she's not leaving you know she like we thought a year ago that she would be but she doesn't even talk about leaving anymore and so uh, you know so that's that's just become one of these kind of societal problems that that they're having in China for the first time.
0: And is the commentary in China on that, is there like unrest among people about that?
1: It's not unrest. And obviously uh, in China, you don't have uh, a free and untrammeled media. So a lot of the media commentary about the economy is very positive. If you read the newspapers this morning in China, they'll give you a lot of, you know, uh, good economic news. It's all about to get better. And you can always find good news, but it's very different commentary to what we read outside China. Younger people I spoke to, I did a piece about this uh, a couple of weeks ago for the Irish Times and spoke to a number of young graduates, and a lot of them were pretty sanguine. I mean, again, many of them were saying, well, I'll, I'll go and continue to live at home. I'll see what's going to happen. I'll do another degree. Some of them saying, well, actually, I always wanted to go into kind of private enterprise. I thought I'd be a, a kind of a, a video game designer, an online gaming designer. I'm actually going to work for the government. And a lot of people are now saying, you know, people who would never have wanted to go for a government civil service job. They're thinking, well, that's going to be safer. And so you're finding that. But you haven't seen any sign really of unrest. Uh, you know, you, do, you generally don't see that kind of mass unrest. And what you see see is individual demonstrations so for example you've had a lot of unrest about the property problem and so if people find that uh, you know the developer goes bust and uh, you know we say there's 100 people and they can't get their apartments they haven't been built those people will go on the streets and they will demonstrate and you do see quite a lot of that in china but you don't have a kind of a big sort of you know youth feeling unhappy going out uh, at least you haven't seen that so
0: far Coming up, I continue my conversation with Dennis Staunton after this short break. Now we know that the growth of China into an economic superpower is one of the you know the major global trends of recent decades. Can you remind us just how much the Chinese economy has developed in that time?
1: At the end of the 1970s, uh, China, a communist country run by the Communist Party of China as it is today, uh, was emerging from the Cultural Revolution. Mao Zedong died, and uh, he was succeeded by Deng Xiaoping, who decided that he was uh, going to reform the entire economy, and part of that was going to be that he would allow private enterprise and private business to to, to flourish, or to people just to, to own private property and to start uh, running their own. Uh, private businesses, and then also uh, that he was going to open China up to the world. And what happened really was that China, from having been this essentially rural-based economy, uh, very much looking in on itself, became the factory of the world. And uh, so it started to, uh, they found that they were able to produce uh, goods uh, efficiently, cheaply. They had all of the manpower that people needed. They had the resources, natural resources, and they developed the skills very, very quickly. And you found that Western companies uh, were coming over to China, and they were using China first of all to produce goods to be sold in the West, and then as the Chinese people became more prosperous, suddenly the Chinese market became more important. And so what you found over the last 40 years, from from about 1980 onwards, is that China, which had an economy about a tenth of the size of America's, now has an economy which is about three-quarters of the size of America. And until recently, if you looked at the growth rates in China, this was set to overtake America. It's now the second biggest economy in the world, and it looked as if it was about at some stage over the next decade or so to become the biggest economy in the world. What that has done, though, has had a huge transformation. It's lifted about 800 million people out of poverty. It's added a decade to life expectancy. It's hugely improved the health of people, Uh, infant mortality rates just collapsed. And you've also seen at the same time the biggest uh, urbanization project in the history of the world, so that you've had hundreds of millions of people leaving the countryside and moving into these cities. And these cities were built from nothing. So these places which had more or less nothing are now cities of 20 million, 25 million. Many of these places you've probably never heard of, and they've got uh, your populations of more than 10 million. There's more than 100 cities in China that have a population of more than a million people. And so these are you know, massive cities and huge infrastructure, which has all been built Really, in the last uh, few decades, and it's accelerated over the last two decades.
0: Now, as you said, uh, China's economy has been liberalised and it's become more profit driven. But in the past two or three years, there's been a major crackdown on big companies in the tech sector there. Um, these companies were perceived to have become maybe too powerful. Uh, they've been regulated. And in some cases, their leaders have been punished. Has that crackdown come at an economic cost?
1: Yeah, what happened really was that uh, the authorities thought that some of these uh, companies were getting a bit too big for their boots, and in some cases, some of the things that they were cracking down on were things that, in most countries, you would think were probably worth cracking down on. Like, for example, if they were developing too much of a monopoly, or uh, you know, so that, so that so in some cases, uh, you know, the the crackdown would have been fairly popular. The problem is that it sent a signal. Elsewhere, that if a company starts to get too big, the big case was the case of Jack Ma, who uh, was this guy who had been an English teacher, actually, he taught English, and he then set up this company called Alibaba, which became this huge online platform and sales platform, payments platform, everything. You could buy everything and do everything on Alibaba. You still can. And uh, and he uh, criticized the regulatory system. And after that, suddenly, this uh, you know uh, IPO and initial public offering of one of his companies—they they halted it. He then kind of went silent, and he's you know he hasn't been punished in terms of being prosecuted or anything, but he's been in and out of the country, and he's generally taken a back seat, and he's kind of handed over control of his companies uh, to other people, and that sent a signal that. Uh, to a lot of entrepreneurs that if you do get a rise too high, that they're going to cut you down to size. And that had something of a chilling effect. It particularly had a chilling effect on foreign companies, who were starting to feel as if the atmosphere for doing business in China wasn't as good as it was, that the state was taking more of an interest, more control. And they were introducing these new laws, which were a bit ambiguous as to what they might mean, but they could mean that, uh, you know, foreign companies or companies would be impacted by them. So for example, there's a new uh, surveillance law, there's a new kind of foreign intelligence law, which uh, has been uh, used maybe to crack down on uh, business intelligence companies, people who come in and try to sort of find out on behalf of companies what the competition are up to, fairly normal business practices elsewhere. But they're now feeling the pinch. So I think that what it's done is that it's had an impact on the business climate in China at a time when China can't afford to have a bad impact on its business climate.
0: Dennis, let's talk about Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party and what they can do about all of this. In China, there's a much more centralised control of the economy than there is, well, for example, in a country like Ireland. And I suppose there's been a perception that this control has helped China weather recent economic storms. But is this time different?
1: Well, the Chinese state is has huge power in the economy it's a It's a funny system in the sense that the political power is entirely centralized uh, in the communist party leadership here in Beijing. But then a lot of the economic power is decentralized to the various provinces, and so these local officials are very powerful in terms of the kind of the budgets they have, what they can do to attract investment, how they can set certain uh, you know conditions for business, and they all they all compete with one another. but nonetheless, When big things happen, like, say, COVID or the financial crash in 2008, the Chinese state can do things that other states can't do, and they have enormous financial firepower. They haven't been doing quite as much this time as perhaps they might have been expected to. And so, for example, they've introduced some stimulus measures, but they haven't kind of done, you know, the kind of big bazooka that a lot of international economists are saying they need to do to just kind of revive things. And part of that is ideological, that uh, the, the Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party leadership decided some uh, a few years ago that they didn't want to, ha- to mimic the kind of consumption-led economies that you have in parts of the West because they felt that there was a danger of kind of uh, fueling speculative bubbles which were first of all create instability but also weren't actually good in the long term and they wanted really, you know, one of the reasons that they uh, took the measures that to deflate the property bubble a few years ago that they did was they wanted to shift investment away from things like property into real manufacturing particularly sort of high-tech manufacturing and kind of really what they would call high-quality growth and so they've been putting a lot of money into Uh, green technology. They produce more solar panels than anywhere else in the world. They're way ahead in electric vehicles. So there are certain parts of the economy that they want to promote and they want to push money in there. But what they don't want to do is to just sort of hand out money And what they're worried about is that if they, say, do the obvious thing, which is to reflate the economy uh, or the property market again, that's just going to create the old problem again. And they also feel that if they just handed money to people or to businesses, that they wouldn't spend it. They'd just save it because that's the mood they're in. So that would be kind of a waste as well. So they're now caught in this kind of a bit of a dilemma that if they do nothing, then the economy is going to continue to head towards the danger of deflation.
0: Consumer prices declined in July for the first time in more than two years. People and businesses are not spending, and the world's second largest economy is struggling to revive demand.
1: And if you have deflation, what happens is that uh, I think I'm not going to buy this thing today because it's going to be cheaper tomorrow. And so that then depresses demand. What it also does is, if you have debts, it then makes it harder to pay them off. Whereas, you know, if you have inflation, then the value of the debt decreases. And so it's easier to to pay it off. Whereas deflation has the opposite effect. So they're very worried about having deflation. So if they don't do anything, the danger is they have deflation. If they do something, The danger is that they, they create speculation. They have started to do more things. And so, for example, in the last few days, they have introduced a new rule saying that instead of having to have a 30% deposit for your uh, property, they've cut it to 20%. And they're saying that uh, local uh, authorities can introduce their own rules and make it easier if they want. Interest rates have been cut. So you are seeing some of this happening. But the question is, you know, can, you know, will they do uh something that's big enough to rescue the situation in the short term. And time is kind of running out. So I think that what you may see, like one of the uh, advantages of having uh, a kind of an autocratic system where you don't have to worry about uh, the political mood is you can change your mind very quickly. And so you saw, for example, in Zero Covid that right up to the day before they changed the policy, there were Talking about how the policy was the only policy that was possible. Then they, you know, overnight, they didn't just modify it, they just abandoned it completely. So they can turn on a sixpence. And so you really can find that, you know, within this system, which looks terribly, uh, you know, firm and sclerotic, that they can actually be very nimble and just completely change. And when they do decide to change, they do have the, you know, the power to, to make something happen.
0: I've been struck, Dennis, these past few weeks that the Chinese economy has been front page news in the US, in the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. And the United States has taken an aggressive economic approach to China, I think, in recent years with bans on trade with different entities, bans on trade of particular goods, such as semiconductors, and most recently, the ban on investment in sensitive tech areas, including AI, computer chips, and what's called quantum information technologies, all the cutting edge stuff. Is the US holding China's economy back with these measures?
1: China thinks that the U.S. is trying to contain China's economic rise, and that that, that all of these measures are all about trying to stop China uh, developing and getting bigger. And so, uh, bans on the you know the, the most sophisticated microchips and all of this stuff. This is to basically to try to stop them rising technologically and economically. Perversely, uh, over the past couple of years, when uh, the U.S. was introducing these measures, trade between China and the U.S. actually grew, uh, but. There's no question but that these uh, politically inspired uh, economic measures against China, which have been picked up by some uh, in Europe as well to some extent, that these are also having an impact because it's, uh, it's impacting the atmosphere in terms of investment. People are wondering whether if you invest in China, first of all, how secure is it going to be if the U.S., are going to bring in new measures to make it impossible. And secondly, is there going to be a reputational risk? If you keep demonizing China and suggesting it's a place you shouldn't do business, then, you know, maybe uh, businesses are going to be worried about it. And interestingly, the, uh, the U.S. Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, was in China this week and she was asked by at a meeting of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai what should american businesses do who are in china and she said you should keep doing what you're doing and you should stay here and so she was in, you know really shifting the message a bit and there have been you know a few high level visits from the us to china recently there's a sign, there are signs that uh, both sides are realizing that you know these tensions are not in anybody's interest. and the danger for the us is first of all that they would actually, create a kind of level of tension that that would go out of control in one way or another. But secondly, that uh, if the Chinese economy really starts to tank, that has a huge impact on the rest of the world.
0: And what sort of impacts do you think it could have.
1: It would have a huge impact. I mean, when you consider that it is the second largest economy in the world, it's got this enormous market, it's got a population of 1.4 billion people. If suddenly they stop producing or consuming to the same extent, it it impacts everybody. It impacts, you know, like it's become, China has become the biggest trading partner. It's the the biggest trading partner for all its neighbours in Asia. It's uh, one of the biggest trading partners now for most European countries, for the US as well. So it just, uh, you know, it's really just like, uh, you know, knocking out uh, one of your biggest trading partners. It affects everything from supply chains. But it's not just Chinese businesses that are going to be impacted if China, uh, if the Chinese economy gets worse. It really does have an effect on everybody else, and particularly if this happens in a, a sudden or an uncontrolled way. And I think that's why the rest of the world, and at least the governments of the rest of the world, are starting to get a little bit anxious. And uh, and I think that insofar as anybody else can do anything about what's happening in China, reining in the rhetoric uh, might be one way of, uh, of not making things worse.
0: Now, you live in Beijing. Is there a sense in your everyday life that you're living in a faltering economy?
1: You get the sense when you talk to people. I was talking to somebody today who was trying to sell her motorcycle. And she got the motorcycle a year ago, and the motorcycle uh, cost, we'll say, 8,000 euros. And uh, she was hoping to sell it for kind of close enough. It was a second hand. She was hoping to sell it for close enough. And now uh, all she can get is 6,000. So she would be taking this sort of 2,000 euro drop. And she was saying that uh, you know nobody wants to buy and, that it's, and she's finding this with everybody. And everybody she talks to, uh, she was talking to a friend of hers who has just been uh, fired from her, or she just lost her job. She left her job because she hadn't been paid for a couple of months. And this woman, she saves against, like, say, 400. She pays 400 for her mortgage, uh, say euros we're talking about now. And then she might uh, save another 400 because she's worried. And so everybody, uh, you know, if they talk within their own social circle, a lot of people, you just, it's not so much that you see kind of um, d- d- deprivation, uh, you don't really see that to any great extent, certainly where I, where I am, but you do, uh, you, know, you just anecdotally you will hear about people just, you know, uh, reining things in a bit, and it is this question of confidence, of people not feeling confident. So the people who are not buying uh, my friend's motorcycle right now, they think she would take 5,000 instead of 6,000 if they wait a little while longer. And maybe she will.
0: Thanks very much, Dennis. Thank you. That's it for today. For more Irish Times journalism, including reports by Dennis Staunton from China, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.